Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. I think people hear the word DNA and they're like, oh, it must be him. And well, no, that's, that's not what they're saying. Right. So they're saying it could be him, this is a possibility it's him, but you have another expert come in and say, well, you can't prove that it's him. Yes, I see that the profile is consistent with it. People just want a yes or no answer, and DNA is not that simple anymore. Now, Brian stole, and he also told me, he stole 150 Oxycontin, 100 and some uh, volumes and some Percocets. I think maybe 20, 30 volumes and some Percocets that he stole and put in his aunt's car the day that they got into competition, Mother's Day. I'm John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast, where justice lies. Just a quick recap of what we've learned so far. On May 20th, 2002, a 78-year-old man, Dick Crandall, was found bludgeoned to death in his Melbourne trailer. Dick had been dealing prescription drugs and surrounded himself with a pretty unsavory group of people. Drug addict Jeff Abramowski was arrested, charged, and eventually convicted at his second trial. The state says a trace of Jeff's DNA was found under Dick's fingernails. How do they know it was Jeff's? Well, not because they got a complete match, but because the DNA found under Dick's nails had a pretty unique genetic marker. One that's rare in the general population, but one that Jeff has too. That DNA link played a big role in the prosecution's case. So did testimony from one of Dick's neighbors who said she saw Jeff at Dick's new trailer on Saturday and testimony from another man who says he dropped Jeff off at the trailer park Saturday. Jeff denied being there that day. We're going to take a closer look at those two state witnesses soon, but right now we're going to focus on three drug addicts. Dick's girlfriend, Judy Foley, her 33-year-old son, Bruce Foley, who was living with them, and Judy's sister, Rita Akeridge, who was Dick's ex. More specifically, we're going to take a look at their alibi. Remember, A violent altercation between Bruce Foley and Dick took place just a week before Dick was beaten to death, and that catapulted the trio to the top of the suspect list. The Mother's Day brouhaha resulted in police being called to the trailer park and Bruce Foley fleeing on foot before being picked up by his Aunt Rita. We learned that Bruce may have stolen drugs from Dick, and we learned that Rita owed Dick money as well, and we know Rita didn't exactly have a high opinion of Dick. She told a detective... Dick was the kind of man who, if you were laying dying or dead, he'd sit there right next to you and enjoy a steak dinner. So after that big fight, Rita, Judy, and Bruce spent the next week in Rita's nearby beachside apartment. That is until the trio head out of town for Alabama, right around the time, according to police, that Dick is spending his last days alive. 
The trip to Alabama is crucial to this case on several fronts. First and foremost, it's an amazing coincidence that they leave the weekend that Dick is murdered. Secondly, by their accounts, it took them three days to make the 10-hour drive to their hometown, a place they had driven to numerous times. Three days on what could have been driven in 10 hours. Keep that in mind. Third are the conflicting accounts of why they made the trip. I touched on these last episode. One reason they cited was for Bruce to turn himself into Alabama authorities on an old charge. Another explanation was that Rita wanted to visit the grave of her son. Third, and I know my list is getting kind of long, but hear me out on why this road trip is so critical to our story. The trio made the trip with very little money. The last thing is how and why an expensive and sentimental piece of jewelry belonging to Dick wound up in Alabama with them. So I'm going to try my best to tell you about this road trip as plainly and simply as possible. That won't be easy, though. It gets almost too confusing to keep straight. I mean, Judy, Bruce, and Rita can't even agree on what day they supposedly left town, let alone what time. Most of their comments about the trip were made to Brevard homicide agents three days after they supposedly left Florida for Alabama. So you'd think the timeline would be a little fresh in their minds. It wasn't. Most of the comments you're about to hear are from those interviews. A few of them were made four years later at Jeff's trial. Ready? You just may need a seatbelt for this bumpy ride. First question, before they even start the engine on Rita's 1996 red Pontiac Sunbird, when was the last time they saw Dick? Now, he's a little hard to understand, but basically, in the same interview, he's going to give about four different accounts of seeing Dick, or not seeing Dick, the week after the fight. When last we saw Dick? Uh, Sunday. That Sunday. Monday? Yeah. Never saw him again. Catch that? Bruce Foley says in the same conversation, mind you, that the last time he saw Dick was on Mother's Day, the day of their big fight when Bruce went after Dick with a golf club, the day Bruce gave Dick a black eye. Then he says he spoke to Dick on the phone. Then he says Dick came to Rita's house, but he didn't see him. He describes a situation where Dick sounds pretty angry, threatening to dismember Rita's dog, and Rita's boyfriend has to run Dick off. But then... At the end, and again, this is in the same conversation, Bruce says he saw Dick and spoke with him, and even apologized. I find it odd that he wasn't pushed on this by agents. I mean, which is it? Did he see Dick again after that Mother's Day fight or not? Adding more confusion, here is what Bruce says at Jeff's trial when asked about the last time he saw Dick. Well, 
recall when that was? Yeah, I think it was a Thursday night. Was that Thursday night before the early Saturday morning? Yes, it was. So now a fourth answer is introduced, Thursday. And prosecutor Rob Parker makes sure to ask Bruce in front of the jury if he had made up with Dick before leaving town. Are you certain about whether it was Thursday night or could it have been Friday night? It may have been Friday night, it may have been Thursday night, but I know I spoke with him one more time before we left. And at that point in time, would it be fair to describe you all said we're sorry? Yes, we did. Up next is Bruce's aunt, Rita Akridge. This when was the last time you saw You saw Mark. I saw Dick the day after Mother's Day, which would have been on Monday. You saw him where? Your apartment or somewhere else? Yes, he was across the street at Circle K. I don't know if it was, I don't, I, I don't know if it was after Mother's Day or not. I don't remember. It was one day just that, that week after Mother's Day. And I called the police. You can find out that day because it was that day I called the police and I told the police that I didn't want him at my house because he threatened to kill my dog. And I called the police and asked, asked him to come and but he'd be ruined. He left. Now, just a quick detour before we actually start this road trip. She tells agents here that Dick came to her house and threatened her dog. That story, if you recall was corroborated by her married boyfriend, William Staples, last episode. And Bruce mentions it in his conversation with police. But it changes entirely by the time Rita's sister and Bruce's mother, Judy Foley, takes the stand to testify against Jeff Abramowski in 2006. Suddenly, it wasn't Dick who threatened Rita's dog, but someone else. Can you guess who? Let's listen. Do you recall whether or not Mr. Jeffrey Abramowski, the person you here in Portland Bay, came over to the Dunes apartment on that particular Friday, the 17th, before the 18th, in which she left to go to Alabama. You recall? Yes, sir. What time was that? Uh, it was probably within like uh, maybe 11, 12, or 1 because he was trying to get the dog. The purpose of getting the dog was what? To get even with Rita. Objection, Your Honor. Will you approach, please? Counsel approach. Do you recall whether or not when Mr. Abramowski came to your sister's apartment in the Dunes on the 17th, was Mr. Courtney Crandall also present at that time? I did not see him. Uh, Jeff was the only one on the patio looking for the dog. Now suddenly it's Jeff Abramowski who was going to kill Rita's dog. Yeah, but I am literally shaking my head right now, okay? But let's keep going. Now police are trying to figure out when Judy, Bruce, and Rita left town and why their trip seems so convoluted. Tell me about that drive up here. Let's see. They got lost myself. You left Friday night. You left what time? Eight or nine. The day that you left to come here, what day was that? Uh, it was Friday night, or early. It was, it was about, it was late. It was about 11, 11.30 when we left. I remember, I think it was Friday. Jenny, we talked for a couple minutes off tape, and you told me that uh, you left Florida on uh, Friday or Saturday morning about 1 a.m. Correct. Are you sure of the date? Yes, sir. What time did you leave Rita's now? Lord, we didn't get out of there like I said. So, like 1, 1 a.m. So, so... 
you're just off one day instead of Friday night. Yeah. And Saturday morning was Saturday night. Yeah. Sunday morning, okay. And now from the trial, yet another response. When did you actually leave to go to Alabama? Sometime during Saturday morning between probably one or two or three. I'm not certain exactly what time because it was just a rat race that night. Oh, yes, sir. Uh, before we got to Alabama, we, we ended up at this, um, I think it's Clear Lake. Is it Clear Water? Clear Lake, Florida. Don't ask me how we got there. I don't know, but uh, it was... Uh, Clear Lake, Georgia, that's what it is. We, we made it to Georgia, thank God. Where's the first place you stopped overnight on the trip? Well, we stopped at some rest areas. I mean, as far as a motel or anything? Um, Lake City. Lake City, Florida? Yes. Okay, let me go through it again. First night you stayed in Lake City, Florida. Yes. Then where'd you drive from there? I guess I drove on to Alabama. Okay, where in Alabama? Birmingham. Birmingham. And did you spend the night there? Yes. In a motel? Uh-huh. you check in? No, we didn't check. The sky let us have the room. And we gave him $40 because uh, they had no vacancy. The office was closed. I was sick, and we gave this guy forty dollars. Yeah, that truck was a flying Jerry J. Flat truck stop. That's what, what I remember. Flying J. Truck stop. You say that. Yes, that one too. That one too. Yes, sir. Flying J. Motel. Economy Lodge. Economy. But was that the Flying J? It was across the street from the Flying J. Flying J. What was the state of that's in Georgia. Is this Georgia or Lake City? Flying Jay. It's in Georgia. Okay. Where, where did you stay in Lake City or did you stay in Lake City at all? Yeah, we stayed in Lake City. And, and we got off of Lake City and, and took a left. It's got a blind Jay. Uh, it's got, a truck, got two truck stops on each side. But, but that's in Florida, that's Lake City is Florida. Yeah, Florida, the Lake City is Florida. That's why we're confused. Yeah, okay, because we're talking about Florida and Georgia. And then that's where we stayed in Florida. Okay, the Flying J's in Florida. Yeah, that's where we stayed. We never made it out of Georgia. Okay, that's pretty hard to keep up with, right? Don't worry. I've listened to their interviews and testimony over and over and over, and it doesn't get any clearer. But perhaps my favorite part... They claim they stayed at a hotel by giving someone $40 for their room. No receipt, no name in a guest log. They just paid $40 for the room. 
Yep. I know, I know. And it goes on like this for, well, for just about all of their statements. They wound up in Birmingham, but had to go to another city named Bessemer because they had not made proper arrangements to receive their methadone treatments outside of Florida. The first clinic they went to turned them down. They needed to find a clinic that could help them. And this is something that Judy Foley tells Agent Gary Harrell when she is first being questioned by him in Alabama. Here's the clip. And did you get your methadone there? No, sir, because I told you that we couldn't get those because they sent our papers without the doctor's signature. So I called uh, Barbara, the counselor, and she got us over here at Bessemer without a doctor's consent. And that's what we drove over here and dosed yesterday morning. So you could come here without the consent? Yes, sir, without the doctor's consent until we Wednesday till Rita and I came back we were going back home to Florida. But then again, that story changes when it comes time for Jeff's trial. Here is what Judy says on the witness stand under oath. What's what you had to do to ensure that you got your appropriate methadone when you went to Alabama? Uh, they had to okay it and call a methadone clinic in Alabama and set us up with it, we would all we would be able to go in and dose in Alabama. And were those arrangements made when were those arrangements made in relation to when you actually left to go to Alabama? We got our papers on Friday. You hear that? Now she says they arranged it before they even left, which is different from what she told investigators at the time. We know that a doctor did not sign off on the trio receiving their methadone outside of Florida because Judy tells Gary Harrell that they couldn't receive their dose at the first clinic that they went to. Yet somehow, over the course of these four years in between that interview and the trial, the story changes and solidifies their alibi. Here is Prosecutor Rob Parker in 2018 pointing to their supposed methadone arrangements as proof that they could not have committed this murder. At least I was convinced and felt satisfied that we had placed uh, Rita and Judy and Bruce uh, traveling from uh, Brevard County to Birmingham, Alabama, you know, there was no question about it. They were, they had to hop from methadone clinic to methadone clinic so that they could uh, properly get their methadone. Nope, they did not hop from clinic to clinic to dose. They were turned away at one clinic in Alabama and then had to dose at a second clinic before turning around and heading back to Brevard County. There was no paper trail of them hopping around, at least nothing produced during the trial or in pretrial evidence. Judy, Bruce, and Rita spin incoherent stories. They make no sense, are not consistent. But somehow the cops buy their alibi. Why? Well, they have receipts. Two receipts. They have exactly two receipts. And get this, both are from Saturday, May 18th. One is from a Jacksonville, Florida rest area at 11 in the morning. Now, to understand how silly this is, you have to understand that Jacksonville is only about a two-hour drive from Brevard County. It literally makes no sense for them to be there at that time if they left Brevard on Friday night or even early Saturday morning. The second receipt is from a Flying J Travel Plaza in Lake Park, Georgia for the same day, Saturday, but with no timestamp on it. Now, Lake Park is a four-hour drive from Brevard County. And they tell police that they allegedly paid a security guard or maintenance worker 
$40 to stay in a dirty room. No registration, no receipt, no proof. Why is this important? Well, we don't really know when Dick Crandall was murdered. We know it was between Saturday afternoon and Monday morning. Remember, Valeria David, Dick's neighbor, claims to have seen him hanging out with Jeff Saturday about noon. And there are two other witnesses who claim to see Dick on Saturday, although neither was called to testify during the trial. Their testimony contradicts Valeria David, so not all of them can be right. One said she had lunch with Dick in Satellite Beach on Saturday, around the same time he was allegedly hanging out with Jeff at his trailer. And another said Dick was attending yard sales in Cocoa Beach Saturday afternoon. That lady, Kathy Eberhardt, told agents she had a strong feeling who might have wanted Dick dead. Well, who do you think would hurt him? I, honestly, her son, his girlfriend's son, I've seen him very nasty to him, and demand money from him. Demand money. Mom, get money from him. No, I'm not a soothsayer. I don't know. I'm telling well, let me you just ask you this. Did and Tom... I think the kid, the person would harm him, him would be that, that uh, Brian, Judy's son. Did... And again, remember, Brian is really Bruce Foley. Oh yeah, also another witness, another neighbor of Dick's, Jennifer Orr. Now she testified that she saw Dick that evening, Saturday evening, as she was washing her car during dusk. Here she is, briefly telling police about it. Saturday you saw him roughly about what time? It was like, it was like 4.30, because we were out there washing my car and I seen him walking around picking stuff up. Oh, okay. Now, we also know that the medical examiner said there was no real decomposition on the body when it was found Monday morning. So really, it's much more logical that Dick was murdered on Sunday rather than Saturday, as police suggest. So for Judy, Rita, and Bruce to produce two receipts from Saturday as proof they could not have killed Dick really holds very little water. It also means that Valeria David's testimony that she saw Jeff and Chris Vasquez's testimony that he dropped Jeff off at the trailer park Saturday morning is, well, it's, it's meaningless. Even if Jeff was there Saturday, and he swears he wasn't, other people testify they were with or saw Dick that afternoon, alive and well. We also know that Jeff has a confirmed alibi for Sunday. So, could Judy, Bruce, and Rita have gotten out of town Friday after being faced with a very angry Dick? A guy threatening to chop up Rita's dog? And probably none too happy with Bruce either? Could they have driven to Lake Park, Georgia, and then for whatever reason headed back to Florida? Did they return to kill Dick? Well, it turns out I'm not the only one who thought this road trip might have brought them back home again before they headed back to Alabama. Okay, let me ask you this real quick. Did you go to Jacksonville and then go home? on Sunday and then leave again? No, sir. That was Agent Gary Harrell asking Rita Akeridge if she went to Jacksonville and then head back home on Sunday before leaving again. Now, the other strange thing, and yeah, I know I keep saying that, but it's just that my editor doesn't really want me to use more colorful language to describe the wacky things in this case. So the strange thing, other than Judy, Bruce, and Rita deciding to leave Florida late Friday night, is that they left without any money even though one of the reasons for going was to pay Bruce's fines when he turned himself in. Now listen to this. It's one of those scratch-your-head moments. At least it was for me. 
Judy calls Rita's boyfriend, William Staples, on Sunday night asking for money. Now, according to Judy, she tells homicide agents that she had made up with Dick and that everything was fine when they left town. If that's the case, then why is she calling her sister's boyfriend and not her own in search of money? Could it be that she already knew he was dead? Here is William Staples telling sheriff's agent Todd Goodyear about the phone call. Yes, I heard from Judy twice. What did Judy want? Judy, uh, Sunday night about 10 o'clock, she called and wanted me to send $200. Is that unusual? Did she offer, ask for money before? Uh, she said if she needed money, for what? That she, would, she would ask to get back home. They went to Alabama, they only had $280 with them when they left. Okay, is that unusual though? Do they ask for money often? Well, this is the first time it's ever happened okay. with me. Has Rita asked you for money before? Oh, yes. Okay, but it's the only way she could get any money. So okay, to get okay. so Judy called and asked for money. What did she say? Why didn't Rita call? She said Rita was sick and her feet were all swollen, okay. and she was unable to, uh, to call. Okay, and did they call again after that, you said? Uh, Rita called today, this afternoon. Okay, Sunday night, how much money did you send them? I sent them $150 instead of the 200 because I figured 150 was enough to, to bring her back home okay. since she was ready to come home, which was kind of sudden. Now, another important revelation about this ill-fated road trip is the sudden appearance in Alabama of something that Dick's family expected to see at the crime scene. Dick's daughter, Judy Watts, asked Elise at the scene if they located a certain piece of jewelry. It was a pendant with an anchor adorned with precious stones that she had specially made for him. Actually, she had two made, one for him and one for her. She told police that he would never give it away. But guess what? Investigators did not find it among the boxes in Dick's trailer. Now there it was in Alabama with Judy Foley. Judy told agents that the pendant was a gift from Dick and that she in turn had given it to her son Bruce, who commented that Dick likely thought she stole it. Now try and follow along, I know it's super confusing. The timing of when this pendant made it into Judy's hands is very important. According to Rita's boyfriend, William Staples, he only first heard about the necklace the week between the Mother's Day fight and the murder. He never saw it. Here he is talking with a homicide agent a day after Dick's body was discovered. Do you know of any gifts or anything that he's given to Judy? Uh, Dick, from what I was told by Bruce and Judy, that Dick had given given a necklace with a, I think it was a um, anchor mm-hmm. or something on it that was worth somewhere around three thousand to thirty-five hundred dollars, and there was a ring, I believe, also mentioned. When that, did you first hear about the necklace? Oh, this was early on in the week. It's probably Monday or Tuesday or so that she supposedly she had this for some time. Okay. But I've never witnessed her with it, only that they've talked about it. And what would they say about it? Only that it was worth a lot of money. And later on they said a dick had went to all these pawn shops and prevented her from going out and selling it so she she could go back home, meaning Alabama. Okay, to so visit. prior to the fight when everybody was happy, who had possession of this necklace? My understanding, Judy had it. How often did you see Judy when you were with Rita? Uh, she'd come uh, stay with Rita maybe two nights a week, two, three nights. Sometimes. So if she was wearing it when you were seeing I would, yes. If she was wearing it, yes, but I, I never seen that. You not, never saw her wearing it? No. You just, uh, they told you that, that he, she had it. That he had given it to her, let her wearing it or whatever. It, correct. How was it? How, tell me what you understand. Did he give it to her? Was he letting her wear it? What was it? I was told that Dick had given it to her, but she was not to sell it. 
And he actually thought that she was going to sell it and went to pawn shops and said, don't take it from her. That was on Thursday or Friday prior to them leaving on Friday late night. Okay, so this is a couple days ago then. Yes. Okay. That's where he stopped them from doing anything. So judging by what Dick's daughter told police and what you just heard William Staples say about Dick not wanting her to pawn the piece, I think it's safe to theorize that Judy and or Bruce may have taken it without Dick's consent. So what do we have now? We have Bruce allegedly stealing drugs from Dick. We have Rita, by her own admission, owing Dick a fair deal of money. And now we have an expensive and very personal piece of jewelry in Judy's possession. And Dick going to local pawn shops asking them not to let her pawn the piece. And all this is taking place in the days leading up to Dick's murder. So with so many holes in their stories, how does the focus shift from them to the man serving a life sentence? Well, when questioned by police in Alabama, Judy, Bruce, and Rita have a very hard time keeping their stories straight and the details about anything in order. But there is one thing they somehow do manage to get straight. They all have the same response ready when agents ask them who might have hurt Dick Crandall. Next time, on Murder on the Space Coast, where justice lies. Okay, there's a guy, what's his name? Jeff Abrakowski. Have y'all talked to him? You know what I'm talking about? Jeff, Jeffrey Abrakowski. I'm not as well as He goes with this guy, Jeff Abrakowski, to the doctor's to get Oxycontin. Jeff who? Ab- Abrakowski. I can't say that. What's yeah. Jeff's last name? It's, it's a A-B-R-A-M-O-S-K-Y. I don't know how to pronounce it. A-B-R-A. I'm just guessing. A-B-R-A-M-O-S-K-W-S-K-Y. That's all for now. Remember, if you enjoy investigative journalism like this, please help support us by subscribing to Florida Today by going to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And follow the podcast at 321Murder. For more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.